0: There's extensive diversity among communities such as Asian American and Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, and consequently, their health behaviors, beliefs and challenges deserve distinct attention.
1: How are we actually breaking down and trying to gather more so that we know more and support the you know, political movements towards more disaggregation support when people bring up let's actually fund money towards this because it's not cheap that's part of the reason why data disaggregation hasn't happened it's because yes it is expensive yes it takes more work but that more work and that like that more money that we put into it ultimately ends up in better health outcomes it ultimately ends up with us having a stronger and a better community, and one that is more accepting and supportive of everyone who comes into this country.
0: That's Dr. Anna Yap, emergency medicine resident at the UCLA Olive View. On this episode of Moving Medicine, a podcast from the American Medical Association, Dr. Yap and AMA senior policy analyst Joaquin Baca discuss how aggregating data has created structural health inequities in the U.S., and how disaggregation is necessary for physicians to fully attend to the unique needs of AA and NHPI patients. I'm your host, Todd Unger, Chief Experience Officer at the American Medical Association. Here's Joaquin Baca.
2: Thank you for joining this episode of Moving Medicine. I'm Joaquin Baca, Senior Policy Analyst at the American Medical Association. I'm joined today by Dr. Anna Yap, Emergency Medicine Resident at UCLA Olive you. Today, we'll discuss the foundations that aggregating data in the United States has set in creating health inequities and the barriers physicians face in attending to the unique needs of Asian Americans and Pacific Islander patients. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Yap.
1: I'm Dr. Anna Yap, an emergency medicine resident at the UCLA Ronald Reagan All of You program. I come from an immigrant family, a Chinese-Malaysian, with my parents who came over and Learned to be a nurse and a physician assistant who encouraged me to become a physician. And I've been so lucky to be part of organized medicine from day one of med school, knowing that I came into medicine, being excited about health inequities and wanting to target the structural inequities that we see in America. And in that journey, uh, I've been embracing more and more my Asian American heritage and what that means to practice in medicine and what that means to be a citizen who has an Asian-american background so I'm really excited to bring that to the table today
2: Asian American and Pacific Islander um, and I think we should we should separate as is being done more commonly now Native Hawaiian as well uh, collectively comprise the largest and fastest growing racial group in the United States but our data systems and infrastructure don't fully, Illustrate the complexity of the of the different experiences that lead uh, to distinct health outcomes. Why do you feel like uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Native Hawaiian data is is crucial? Um, there's extensive diversity uh, in in that group, and consequently, consequently, their health behaviors and beliefs and challenges deserve distinct distinct uh, attention. Um, Can you tell us a little bit of what you think about uh, the need for disaggregation of data uh, and and where it comes from and and some of those structural issues?
1: So we as physicians, we as scientists, we we work on data. Uh, Ultimately, to really change anything or to direct what we do, data is important. Um, That really kind of drives why we need to make sure that the data we get is correct. If you look at the world Asians, in general, make up sixty percent of our population, but yet we lump all Asians, especially in America, under this kind of asian american umbrella and it kind of erases all the different all, all the different things that we've been exposed to as immigrants in this country um, it's we're we're such a Diverse population, that unfortunately, because of the past in America, we had to come together and say we're just going to be called Asian Americans to try to fight the history of being quote Oriental. Um, and that's where our, that's where we as a political group came together. Um, but since then, we've been able to really look more at what, at how important it is to have different information or different data about each of different each of the different groups. I mean, the perfect example, I I think, of this is just looking at, like, our educational backgrounds. Um, So you can say that, so if you look at, like, in California, 70% of American Indians, 25 or older, hold a bachelor's degree, while only 10% of Laotian Laotian Americans do. And unfortunately, because we have this model minority myth that all Asians apparently do well or go to higher education, or there are more of us in higher education than the percent of us in the actual population, um, we tend to think that all Asians go to school when Realistically, when you actually break out the AA and HPI community, that's not the case. Um, And that's just like one tiny example of all the large ways in which we're just all so different. There's been a long history in America of when Asian-Americans have immigrated from their various countries and in what situations we've immigrated from our countries. Whether that be earlier on during like the gold rush in America when you had a lot of Chinese people coming over to work um, or later or Closer to now, like after the 1960s, where you had a lot of um, Asian Americans come over from um, Asia to work more in the healthcare industry, especially looking at Filipino nurses who came over, uh, and then you also now look at the refugees nowadays who are coming over, displaced from their countries, and unfortunately, they're part of the poorest communities here in America, and um, we oft- they oftentimes get erased when we look at API uh, community API data.
2: I wanted to ask a little bit more about that too, because I think within the just the aggregation of data is also uh, with uh, Indian American uh, and and you know broad Asian uh, grouping, and so that does that complicate things as well.
1: The issue at the end of the day is when we're looking at AAP, NHPI communities, you have East Asians, which oftentimes uh, more more represented in higher education, and then you have Southeast Asians, and then you have Pacific Islanders, and we all have such different experiences and uh, different places from where we come from. And there's also just a very large difference in terms of numbers of how many of each group are in America in itself.
2: Great. And, and can you share how this lack of disaggregated data impacts uh, physicians serving these communities on a day-to-day basis? like through you know, electronic health records, health outcomes?
1: Yeah, so I think one big problem in like electronic health records is, is that we just don't even have the language to be able to get the data that we need. Um, and that's part of the big issue with a lot of the data we have nowadays. And it's great that we're making steps forward to really um, access that and to really change that. I mean, California, I believe in like 2016, 2017, actually passed an act to increase the, the amount of data that we're getting when it comes to HPI uh, individuals. Um, but they're kind of the leading state in the whole nation. Um, when we're looking at uh, data within EHRs, within health outcomes, ultimately the part of the big issue with all this is that some of the healthcare that we provide, actually quite a lot of healthcare that we provide does have specificities when it comes to particular communities. Uh, For example, treatment plans are different for AAPI and non api individuals, such as hormone replacement therapy or bone marrow cancer treatment. Um, And then the AAPI community also has markedly different health risks when it comes to hepatitis B for cancer, for cardiovascular disease, among other diseases. And unfortunately, a lot of disease does get Uh, missed or just kind of ignored in the Asian American community. I don't think many people know this, but Asian Americans actually have a median age of 36, which is slightly younger than the national average age of 37.4 years. Um, And there's a higher percentage of Asian Americans who actually don't have health insurance compared to white individuals in America. Um, And we also have like 10% of the AAPI community that has diabetes compared to 8% of the general population. Uh, And then when you break that data down even more, it's actually 47% of American Samoans and 20% of Native Hawaiians have diabetes, and you wouldn't know this unless you actually broke out um, the data and disaggregated the data. We also have, especially in our refugee population, a large, large, large group having PTSD with uh, 62% of Cambodian refugees having PTSD and another 51% having major depression in the last 10 months, um, a lot of times from their refugee status. All this all these different health outcomes that wouldn't be borne out unless we look at the data and really have that data, but the problem is is that oftentimes there's a lot of barriers and excuses to getting the data, whether that be from uh individuals saying well, that we don't have enough people to grab from or we don't have enough buy-in. Oftentimes when we're looking at this research in general, um, Asian Americans are left out of (laughs) research studies. And so we might not even be able to talk about Asian Americans, much less break it down into disaggregated groups and look at them even further.
2: I'm sure that was particularly important during COVID and and I've heard um, in particular around the development of the a vaccine and treatments that that might have been a larger issue. Not to mention the xenophobia and the different uh, experiences that that Asian American Pacific Islanders, Native Hawaiians, experienced during the pandemic specifically.
1: Xenophobia uh, in America. Xenophobia in general has you know has affected I think every sector of the A and community, but I think it was especially rampant in like the East Asian. Uh, communities, those who presented most as those who could be part of you know, China and where a lot of this hate and and vitriol kind of was directed to, whether it be our past president calling it the Chinese virus. Um, I have stories of co-residents who took care of patients who I had. We had one patient come in, they were an Uber driver. Who, this was pretty early on in the pandemic, who was really concerned that they could have the Wuhanese virus because they drove a Chinese person in their backseat who had a Wuhan accent. Um, and so then they were sure that they would have gotten it. Um, I myself, during the pandemic, when I was working, uh, had a patient who initially was nice to me, but when realized I was Chinese uh, appearing, Um started yelling at me about how my people were making everyone sick and how, uh, we stole everything from him and were eating all the rice. And, um, it just kind of made it a very, very hostile encounter. I've had friends from my hometown in SoCal, uh, who had family members who were screamed at when they were in line at Costco for saying that, you know, they were Making everyone wear masks, and it was their fault that we had this pandemic. And it's it's definitely been tough on our community, especially uh, in so much as like the Asian American community is dis- dis- disproportionately represented in healthcare. And in this pandemic, we've been working so hard <laughs> to fight against uh, this pandemic. And it's really disheartening to be targeted um, and to be hated just for our race. And oftentimes many of us may not actually have come from the countries in the countries in which people associate us with because of what we look like. Um, and yet to carry that burden of, of being hated for what we look like um, while still trying to provide care has been particularly rough in the, in the community for sure.
2: Absolutely. And it's it's horrible. and But it does bring up a, a really good point that maybe we could pick out a little bit more. I think uh, what you're bringing up is is there's a lot of interpersonal uh, racism and, and discrimination that's going on, based on on some of of what you've described, but there's also the larger systemic and um, structural pieces uh, that that are are really endemic to to all the way that this aggregated uh, data has has really compounded problems. So. Um, and including in that, there are state and federal data repositories and, and points where there may be uh, gaps or, or the systems are broken, uh, such as like the census or through uh, NIHS or, or other data collection. Can we switch gears a little bit and talk about organizations that you see? Or do you see those gaps as well?
1: well? Talk about it at the national, at the federal level. Uh, four years ago, there was a big push to have the census actually break down and disaggregate communities. Um, and unfortunately, it was, it was shut down. And so our past census we just had uh, was conducted similarly to, to the one we had in 2010. And I mean, if we don't have buy-in from the federal level, from where the most basic of information should be with our census information, how is the rest of our data going to also follow suit? Um, and that's, I mean, we need to have the political will to do this. And, and we unfortunately just don't. Um, I'm glad that the AMA has put forward the report that we put forward, hopefully helping to kind of shove that needle just a little bit. right? Um, I think a, a lot of Asian American physicians I've talked to have been like, yeah, we need to be having more data. Um, and it's great that our institutions are seeing that and moving forward and, and supporting that.
2: Thank you, thank you, Dr. Yap, and I, I would mention with the um, strategic uh, plan to embed equity into medicine through a, the AMA plan, it's not just the Center for Health Equity's plan. We, we did try and go through a lot of uh, history, and um, in particular, I, I um, helped with some of the policy work uh, or looking at, at how policy affected some of this. One of the things that I had done early for Dr. Maybank was to look at uh, kind of a history of policy. Uh, And I started with African-American and Native American uh, policies and how it affects health outcomes uh, today. But I also did one, and there's a a timeline at the end of the strategic plan that may be of interest uh, that does look through uh, a lot of the history of policies that, that negatively impacted um, uh, uh, Asian American, Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders in particular and, and um, some, some of the policies uh, that were passed. And this is where I, I was thinking from a systemic standpoint um, and a structural standpoint that putting uh, policies like this in place have huge ramifications, and, and especially over time. So, um, But uh, you know, one of the earliest ones was uh, that the Cal- there was a California law in 1858 that was passed to bar a Chinese and Mongolians, the way they termed it at that point, from entering the United States. Um, uh, there's also, of course, you know, the major things like the Chinese Exclusionary Act and um, the Japanese internment camps that were established uh, over over the, the years. Um, there was immigration stations that were set up specifically, uh, to, to uh, monitor the, uh, number of, um, Asian Americans entering the country. And, and, uh, one of the other things I found in, in some of the research that I did was, uh, you one, the, the establishment of the border, um, uh, patrol was actually to, Find, uh, and to ex- try and keep Asian Americans from entering the country um, at our borders. But I, I do see how all this has created and compounded uh, issues of how a, uh, data is aggregated, but also how uh, it, it has been done very intentionally and purposefully to uh, oppress specifically uh, different segments of the population in um in in having the best outcomes they can have not just in health but in every arena that that we could think of
1: and i'd like to point out that like these acts the chinese exclusion act these like things codified in law are, are really like <laughs> that these there's these are the only actual laws in american history that have specifically called out a particular like group a particular Um, racial group to say you're not allowed to come into our country and then after they removed that specific calling out of a particular group they were it was still baked into policy whether that be the number of Asians who are allowed to emigrate over by numbers of quota um, and kind of issues around that so it like when you have that built into into the history of our country in terms of what we've decided can be laws and cannot be laws, of course it's going to be difficult to overcome that structural racism that has been in place as well.
0: Medicine doesn't stand still, and at the AMA, neither do we. AMA members are physicians like you who are shaping the future of medicine. Become a member today and join the movement. Visit ama-assn.org slash moving medicine
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about um just how also our how we like conceptualize what Asian Americans are really has unfortunately been part of the barrier to why we've been having such a hard time disaggregating and really coming together as a community each other or this model minority myth this idea that like if some Asians can make it, then like all minorities should be able to make it. And it's been used uh, very easily to uplift well the (laughs) Asian Americans that fit that box to then just ignore what's going on everywhere else. Um, And I, I think that it's also been used as a way to have Asian Americans maybe not Hop into the political sphere as much when it comes to when it comes to speaking up about health equity, uh, because it's it's just been weaponized against us. Because if we don't, if we if we speak up against the system that says or that tries to like put us up as somehow better, then then we may somehow not benefit from it either. Speaking from my background is somebody who is China's appearing, but truthfully, I don't really identify with a lot of what like what China is. I've never been to China myself. My family is Malaysian. We come from Malaysia. Um, we speak we speak many different languages. Um, and we were talking. We kind of mentioned about how does it feel, or how, what boxes do we check when we're looking at when we're trying to give ourselves our identity and oftentimes i'm checking chinese and other because i don't really feel like i'm chinese so much as i feel like i'm malaysian um and that's like southeast asian but we don't typically have that box to check um and then even within malaysia you have racial issues there where you have like a Chinese appearing population, and then you have a Malay appearing population. And I don't know where my family came from, from before Malaysia. I know they were displaced sometime during the many wars that have happened. Um, But there's, there's so much complexity there as well. And when you look within Asian American communities, there actually is a lot of antagonism between different communities as well. Um, my mom my family they're wonderful and they're very accepting wonderful humans but they like they do talk about the fact that like the japanese really did hurt our family and like my grandma has a lot of ptsd from the fact that her parents her uncles and aunts were killed during war ii in front of her by the japanese um and so there's a lot of like there's a there's a lot of historicity there as well. Um, and so when we lump together all Asian Americans, we also erase the very rich and complex histories we have had, our communities have had with each other uh, across history and across, across time.
2: That's so important because it, it's also about um, the tendency to erase culture that, you know, happens in the United States. So sometimes... The great melting pot can be uh, something that is not really considering the richness of all the different cultures that might might go away or might be erased in that process. So I think what you're bringing up is extremely important to, in the larger context of how um, culture d- plays, and also how culture plays uh, a, a big role in wellness and and the, you know some of the richness that's involved in. Um, the cultural practices uh, get lost that way as well. Um, Do you have any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah. Um, So my family, uh, we grew up in a Adventist church, which is a Chinese church. Um, And there was actually a lot of Malaysians there. And it turns out that that church was made up of a lot of Individuals who also had immigrated from Asia, uh, in order to pursue a life here, and kind of fell into uh, going to healthcare, specifically going to nursing. Um, at the time that my parents immigrated over in the seventies or eighties, um, it was the time when we were recruiting hard for nursing. And so, in the Melinda, where my family is from, we just we had a good little enclave of. Uh, Chinese individuals, a lot of them actually from Malaysia, got to have. we got to have a lot of culture from, whether that be in, you know, various Chinatowns or towns or whatever towns we're from. Uh, but for, for us, it was based in, in this church because it was also the organization that helped me to be able to have visas and to be able to work in this country. Um and I remember growing up, having this church was really wonderful because we got to celebrate holidays that you wouldn't necessarily celebrate in in America. We had our Chinese New Year sometime usually in February because we followed the lunar calendar and we'd have Chinese school on every Sunday where we'd ch- learn some Chinese. Um, and like for somebody, for me, I actually, Chinese was my first language, um, specifically mandarin uh but going to school it kind of disappeared because i was made fun of for speaking i was made fun of for having you know rice in the rice box that my dad so lovingly prepared um because like it smelled funny or didn't look right um and so trying to navigate what it meant to be asian american in in america um was really difficult and still is difficult Many of coming to terms with what Asian American means and what that means for my professional life and and why knowing my Asian American Chinese Malaysian history all that has come a little bit later in life because I spent much of the earlier part of my life wanting to just like assimilate and be able to succeed um and wanting to just you know do well uh and many times that is congruent with uh, accepting and embracing what your culture is um, and so I will say that I am I feel like I'm still a baby in this sphere because uh, there's so much to learn and so much that we're not taught in school so much that we don't talk about like we don't really talk about the internment camps and the fact that we took away the livelihoods of so many Japanese Americans who are then like at the end of it all expected to accept it and go back to the to like trying to live life again, despite the fact that the America, that their country took away everything that they have had. Um, we don't talk a ton about the Chinese Exclusion Act. We don't talk a ton about the structural racism that's that's been in place against Asian Americans. It's not written about, it's not it's not taught largely. Um, but also oftentimes it's kind of Erased uh, in order to be like well, but you're still doing well anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so there, there's a lot of a lot of that as well.
2: No, and that that does lead to intergenerational trauma. It, it leads to uh, the inability to build uh, wealth over time, and and that has major repercussions on you know from a socially determinants of health perspective, um, many of those factors. So. The resilience of people is, is is still astounds me because, like you were mentioning, with the Japanese internment camps, people lost everything. They had successful businesses; they were accumulate starting to accumulate wealth potentially, and all that was just taken away, and people had to start from scratch. Uh, and and it's, it's really horrifying to imagine uh, that that people had to go through that, and are still recovering from that in in many ways and, and how that has a major impact on, uh, the mental well of, of so many people, just like you were describing at the beginning, the statistics wise, um, of people that have PTSD from lots of different situations and, and refugee status included, but, uh, depression and all these other forms of behavioral, uh, health that, that, have been compounded through all these other bad policies. So the whole point of of the classification of races is, is basically been more about exclusion than about how to um, count for the benefit of populations. So I think you know it, that from the very uh, origins of how data was uh, collected, it, it really was meant to put people into categories it was never really meant to be at the the benefit of the populations it was it was more or if it was it was um, almost as if people were being treated as uh, commodities or as um, you know protecting we're protecting the uh, ability to produce uh, material goods and that that's kind of the source of of why we would need data on specific populations, I can say, from a public health standpoint, um, as as another example, I, I you know worked at a tumor registry, and that cancer is a reportable disease, and so the data on race and ethnicity becomes very important from from a surveillance standpoint of um, how how diseases affect different people but just like it was described earlier um when you lump everyone together like if you you wouldn't know the difference uh between um the, those that have di- like it was described dr yep with uh, diabetes um i think you mentioned uh two populations, one experienced a 20% and one experienced at 44%, but when they're lumped together, it, it's kind of lost. Um, and so I think it's the same with, with all data collection, like in cancer surveillance or whatever it might be that the data collection become, uh, in precise and not that helpful. Uh, but from another perspective, you know, like if you're using it just to, to kind of monitor a larger group then that that may be helpful to that group, but not to not to the individual groups that really uh, could benefit from from the disaggregated yeah. data.
1: I think when it goes when it comes to data, um, when we don't have it, then we don't know to even even look. Yeah. My, my example for this is like HIV in Asian Americans. First of all, like sex sexuality is is very taboo in many Asian American groups or maybe Asian groups. Just, flat out. Um, But so we don't actually realize that, you know, more than one in five Asians living with HIV don't, they don't even know it. And we don't talk about it. That's a big problem in the Asian American community. And I know there's been many great groups trying to target those kind of issues. There's been, there's a high prevalence of hepatitis B, um, with chronic hepatitis B. And it's like one in 12 Asians, I believe, have chronic hep B, but like, they don't know about that. Um, and we end up having quite a lot of liver cancer in, in Asian-American groups. Um, mental health is another huge thing that we don't talk about a ton of in Asian-American groups. And I talked about the PTSD and the depression that we have in these uh, in our various refugee communities. Um, but even in our non-refugee communities and growing up as an Asian-American myself, like you don't talk about mental health. You don't talk about accessing that. Suicide are actually quite high in Asians, but we don't we don't talk about that. Um, and because we are supposed to be a model minority, because technically when you group us all together as a, a and HPI, we actually have quote, better health than the average American. We don't think about the health inequities that come with uh, being Asian American in this country. When you disaggregate the data, Um, And this is coming out of a study in California, I believe, in the past year or two. Um, When we looked at Vietnamese people who uh, responded to the survey, they actually responded that they were in fair or poor health more than twice often than non-Hispanic whites and Asians overall. Um, Oftentimes, think that Japanese individuals are really healthy. But in fact, there was actually a higher proportion of people who are obese and overweight um, and obesity and being overweight is a huge taboo in East Asian countries, in your like the lighter skin colored countries, the Japanese, the Chinese, the Korean uh, individual groups. Um, but you kind of ignore the obesity that does happen in those groups, the diabetes that comes with that, the hypertension that comes with that. I know growing up, I was a more obese child and uh, was made fun of incessantly for it. And in fact, like, had a lot of self-esteem issues that came around with that because obesity was seen as a as a moral failing whereas in many other parts of the Asian American community that is enormous towards different states of being towards different health that we have is very different between the communities that we have uh, we we all belong into well I think also part of this study of the Asian Americans in California, ultimately Filipino respondents were in the worst health of all Asian subgroups. And they had a higher prevalence of high blood pressure, asthma, heart disease, delayed medication usage. I know in my county hospital that I work at, um, and all of you, uh, I'll walk in and I spend uh, more than my 50% of my um, time working on a shift speaking Spanish um, and I'll come in and I'll be like Inglés or Espanol? and they're just like neither. I'm Filipino, <laughs> um, but there's actually quite a large Filipino population that shows up in my county hospital who are on HD or who have you know chronic medical problems. Um, and I didn't think a ton about it until I started working at this county hospital and saw many more of them there. And so, um, you know, it, it with with this. At least I also grew up with this idea that Asian-Americans are in general a lot healthier than the general population. But as I've become more in tune with, you know, with learning more in, in health care and being a physician, um, I'm constantly just learning so much about the fact that this, aggreg- this, this disaggregation is so much more important than I could have ever realized as a younger, younger child
2: you did bring up a couple of things that I, I wanted to ask more about if, if it'd be okay. Um, one of the other areas, you know, specifically at AMA, um, uh, is, has, uh, the what we still call maybe hopefully changing the master file of all physicians on record. And, and even within that data set, uh, of course, Asian American, um, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders are lumped together and um, which which also creates an issue just in terms of um, something you mentioned earlier, uh, the, your, your parents were in health care and, and you became a physician, but um, the number of uh, physicians within specific population groups um doesn't necessarily match the population. And, and like, as you're mentioning, you're speaking Spanish and so, uh, meeting a deficit in some ways of, uh, physicians that, that may have that as their native language. Um, but just knowing again, the data of the number of how how well physicians are representing their population or their cultures and communities is not, is not well known because of, uh, the aggregation of the data there as well. Um, what, what would your thoughts be on that?
1: Uh, that is a huge issue and why it's important that we're having more, especially more NHPI physicians come up through the ranks. The AE and the HPI community, there's a huge disparity in who actually attains higher education. Um, the, there are a disproportionate number of Chinese, Indian, East Asian individuals in higher education. But there are not enough Native Hawaiians, not enough Pacific Islanders, not enough of a lot of Southeast Asian physician groups as well. And so we miss that. And then you have people like me where, unfortunately, I'm not great at giving care to my own community because I've lost a lot of what I I think – could have made me quote more Malaysian as, in as as an individual, because in trying to assimilate more into our culture, I've lost a lot of like I don't speak Malay, honestly. When I try to speak Chinese nowadays, Spanish comes out because I I grew up in SoCal, and learned Spanish in my high school because Chinese wasn't an option, and my parents also spoke English to try to assimilate better and to try to be able to like have their jobs and, and be able to, you know, live the dream that they came here with. Um, and so I I also struggle with that personally. I struggle with the fact that I don't, I I don't think I can provide care to the community that I really feel like I should. Um, and so we have a lot of that loss too with our erasure of our culture, um, with our younger individuals growing up here and and not having a society that encourages them to live and to embrace and to keep their culture, we then lose that and don't get to bring that into our practice as much. Um, and then also, because we have so many ANHPI communities who... Are a race or who are lost or who are not recognized uh, in their poverty that they have higher than the national average or in the fact that they are at the levels that they should, uh, that, that like other Asian Americans do. Um, we don't necessarily have those pipelines in place as robustly as, um, as we hope we could. There's been a lot of great work across the country now that we're realizing that, now that we're seeing that to try to help uplift more, especially NHPI communities, um, and to uplift more of those individuals coming into medical school and to becoming physicians. And um, even though I'm relatively early on in my career, I, I am trying to make more of an effort to really help uplift uh med students and rising physicians who are part of these communities to be able to as a champion for them and who can help uplift them and raise them up and encourage them and to know that, you know, their experience matters, that they that their backgrounds matter, and that they as a physician bring so much to the table. Uh, and, you know, once they're there to also have them bring others
2: up as, up as well. That's great. And
0: To learn more about the AMA Recovery Plan for America's Physicians, go to ama-assn.org slash time to rebuild.
2: When you were applying to medical school or in your pipeline, were there specific challenges that you encountered that you feel maybe made made things more difficult because... uh, uh, of your background, is that something that you felt was was something that happened with you specifically? I agree.
1: So my family doesn't come from generational wealth. Um, my mom comes from a very poor family in Malaysia where uh, they'd be lucky to have rice and soy sauce for meals um, and relied a lot actually upon the goodness of uh, C- Christian groups who gave like charity um in the southeast asian countries which is a whole another topic i could talk about sometime my mom over here to america so that she could pursue schooling because in malaysia it is a very heavy muslim country and not necessarily one that was at the time well set up to support women attaining higher education so she came over here um and worked really hard, uh, <laughs> worked many jobs uh to the phone uh, to ultimately become a nurse and to help bring my father over and to help support her family members also coming over uh to become uh, to to make make a life for themselves that they wanted here in America. Um and growing up, I very much bought into this model minority myth, and because I'm Chinese appearing. Always bought uh, bought into this idea that like I wasn't going to get help or that there was already plenty of Chinese people in school um, and so I would have to work harder to be able to attain the same levels of achievement um, and that's a, it's a looking back now it's a very toxic uh, way to believe but unfortunately it was just kind of what was shown to me. Um, and so it made me very much doubt myself. Um, I only applied to UC schools. It was University of California schools from high school, even though I was third in my school of like 3,600 students, because I thought that I wouldn't, wasn't going to be good enough to be able to get into IVDs or anywhere else. And so UC schools are just where I was going to be able to go to. Um, and then in that, I wasn't really able to get any financial Like aid um, or help. Um, So I didn't think that it was wise for me to apply to anywhere but public schools because it was going to be the only places that me and my family would be able to afford. Um, I am very proud of having gone to UC Berkeley. I love it as a school. It is a wonderful place and doing a lot of wonderful research. So ultimately, I'm very thankful for having gone there. Uh, But having that type of ingrained, like racism and beliefs, were very toxic, and I think unfortunately it has it's ingrained in a lot of subsectors of the API community, uh, specifically more the Asian American community. You've seen the like lawsuits against Harvard alleging that being Asian American means that we have to um, have higher SAT scores or have higher XYZ in order to qualify to go to school compared to other racial groups. Um, because of our prevalence or like over abundance in higher education, um, and I think there is there are elements of that that can be true, and that's yet another barrier to having us all stand together as a and p and hpi to support each other and to uplift everyone. Um, but I definitely definitely having that like belief uh growing up stunted my i think what i could achieve in many in some ways I still ultimately i've gone very far and i'm thankful for everything i've been able to do um but that's been something i've i've thought about more and been able to reflect on more and i think having that like model minority myth also then can drive many other individuals in the Asian American community to feel like they're not good enough because they haven't achieved that particular, um, you know, whatever we're supposed to achieve. Um, And I know growing up I was told, you know, you should become a doctor or a lawyer and an engineer or something like that because that's what you're told you're supposed to become, at least in my particular like Chinese ish experience. Um, And I've had like family members who haven't attained that and have thus afterwards struggled to figure out what they're supposed to become, because, you know, doors or professions that are possible or exist may not have been presented as one that is possible to us. Um, so there's a lot of complexity tied into all of that as well.
2: Yeah, and I, I was just thinking of one other area that makes it more complex. Like, like your mom came over as a nurse, and, and I, I wonder if it was on like a J-1 visa, but um, some of the policies that are around that as well can were, we're and continue to be big, major challenges to and specifically um, Asian-American, Pacific Islander, Native Hawaiian um, people that want to practice medicine that are trained outside of the United States. Uh, and so even even there, there are structural barriers and, and barriers that uh, I, I hear, too. Um, People that uh, because they have an accent are treated very differently. That may not uh, be able to get licensure or get uh, advance in their in their medical careers as easily because potentially have an accent and things like that.
1: Hundred percent. Like uh, so, to all of that, our IMGs are so incredibly important. Um, they provide the the, so the most care in underserved areas and go into the specialties that we don't fill. Um, our primary care specialties that we don't fill, uh, our IMGs go in and serve in those communities. So our, our IMGs are so incredibly important, but yet a lot of the policies that we're having aren't necessarily supporting them. We have a resident and fellow member who is an IMG who's being deported back to their country because they couldn't get their visa to properly work. And and so that's a ginormous issue. I've firsthand seen where you having a different accent or where you looking a certain way makes you not be respected. There's a perfect example um, where I had a Chinese attending, had a little bit of an accent, and then had a white resident taking care of a patient. And every time the Chinese attending would say something, patient didn't really, like, recognize it until the white male resident said it. And they're like, oh, okay, okay, doctor. And, like, there's been so many, like, those tiny microaggressions that uh, we get as Asian American providers, as pretty much any provider of color. I also see it with my black colleagues as well. They're just ignored so many times because of the way they look or the way they present or the way they talk. I had a um, intern when I was on the CCU who actually came from the Netherlands. So they were white, but they had a very strong accent, like other accent. They were an ob guy in their other country, and they'd come over here to become a physician, so they went into internal medicine. And they had their co-residents, their seniors, incessantly put them down or say that this person wasn't smart uh, or like – behind their back to me be like, oh, I'm so sorry you have that resident. Like he's not any good. But when I thought that he was one of the hardest working residents that I had ever had, and that people overlooked like how what he thought or what he said because of his accent. And yes, he may have taken a little bit long to explain things because of the way he spoke, but ultimately had a lot of depth and a lot of smarts to the stuff that he proposed, but unfortunately, people around him couldn't get over just how he presented differently. And we unfortunately have a lot of that bias just within our healthcare systems, within our healthcare workforce in and of itself. And so it's wonderful that we as the AMA have a health equity plan moving forward, trying to break down those barriers so that we have data disaggregation for like for all races, because that's so incredibly important. Um but also trying to break down the barriers that we have within each other when we as a workforce have. Um, I, I want to say that like data disaggregation, overcoming racism, equity and equity in our nation is so important for everyone. It's not just an Asian American problem. It's not just a single like, groups problem, but something that we as a nation have to deal with. And I think that's something a little bit more unique about us as a nation, because we are a nation of immigrants. We've seen how incredibly important it is to have data disaggregation in all groups, especially like, for example, in this past election, when we saw that like Latin American groups are so incredibly different, when we looked at who was voting and how they were voting, um, we saw like the Catholic Hispanic or Cuban groups in Florida versus other voting Hispanic groups. It's important in a a different racial subcategory. So it's data disaggregation is something that matters to all of us. It should matter to us as scientists. It should matter to us as physicians. Solution, uh, coming through the AMA, asking us to also disaggregate data for Middle East and North American individuals who also are ignored in all this. Like, where do they fit in data? When we look at it, are they, do they fit in the white subcategory? Do they fit in the Asian subcategory? We don't even talk. We don't even talk about these other groups. So data disaggregation is so important for everyone. It's 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 fantastic that we as a scientific community are starting to realize that more and more. Um, and I'm, I just encourage everyone, whenever you look at data, just look at more and more actually breaking down and trying to gather more so that we know more and support the you know political movements towards more disaggregation support when people bring up let's actually fund money towards this because it's not cheap that's part of the reason why data disaggregation hasn't happened it's because yes it is expensive yes it takes more work but that more work and that like that more money that we put into it ultimately ends up in better health outcomes. It ultimately ends up with us having a stronger and a better community and one that is more accepting and supportive of everyone who comes into this country. 60% of the world's population falls under this A and HPI group. And so within that, you can just imagine how many cultures and countries and groups there are within that, but yet we all lump it under that one Um, as as like context to all that, about ten percent of the world's population is what we consider white. About eleven percent of the world's population is what we consider black. So it's again insane that we <laughs> lump all of us under this single API umbrella.
2: Absolutely.
1: I think as a physician, and this is also from my bias, as coming from somebody who is from Southern California, such California, where there's a large Latinx population, I think the structures that we have don't necessarily support bringing up physicians that can really provide care to these, to our AAPI communities, probably because there's just like a ton of different languages that are spoken within the AAPI communities, Um, but also just the fact that, you know, they also live in many smaller enclaves um, or oftentimes um, seen as invisible. But I think that As we move forward, we should also look at having more like Mandarin or more Vietnamese or other like A and HPI languages offered in like high school, for example, because that was a big place that ultimately drove the fact that my Spanish is much better than my Mandarin at this point. And so I can provide care to Latinx speakers much better than I can ever give to a Chinese speaking individual. And thus the care to it. My to my Chinese speaking patients are going to be not as great for me. Like I'm going to use a translator, but realistically, we can, when I can speak to my patients, I end up doing much better. And when we look at the data on, like our how our racial groups are growing in America. Currently, the API community comprises 6.1 percent of the overall U.S. population, but it's growing rapidly. The time between 2000 and 2015, we went from 11.9 million to. 20-ish million individuals. So that's 72% growth during that time period. And AAPIs are um, supposed to project to surpass the Latinx community by 2055, then becoming the largest immigrant group in the country. But again, back to the whole issue of APIs. like when we break it down, you know, the, wh- the whole community doesn't speak Mandarin or doesn't speak Cantonese or doesn't speak Japanese, many different languages. And if we help to increase... The amount of education we do for about Asian American countries about or what we can do culturally or learn culturally from these countries um, we might be then be able to actually raise physicians who can then also provide care to these communities we might be having more you know White people who can speak Chinese giving care to, the, to our Chinese speaking individuals or, or Vietnamese or Vietnamese speaking individuals and not just have to rely on only having hoping that we increase the pipeline, which we absolutely should and utterly should. But that's not going to be the that sh- shouldn't be the only way that we are able to provide good care to our various
2: patients. Thank you again, Dr. Ya, for being with us today's conversation about why counting is crucial.
1: Thank you so much for having me today and for letting me share my experiences as a Chinese-Malaysian immigrant um, and for giving me this platform to to speak. I want to say I don't speak for all ANHPI individuals, and I'm, again, relatively early and young in this sphere, but I, I think that each of our experiences are so incredibly important, and I encourage... Everyone listening to this, to delve into your history, into your experiences, and to really bring that to the table when you're learning more. Um, and you, as physicians, you have so much to bring to the table with your background. Um, and let's all move medicine
0: together. You just heard from Dr. Anna Yap, emergency medicine resident at UCLA Olive View, and Joaquin Baca, AMA senior policy analyst. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. You can also subscribe to Moving Medicine and other great AMA podcasts anywhere you listen to yours, or visit ama-assn.org podcasts. Thank you for listening.